The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Lord, be on my mind, be on my lips, and in my heart. Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning and ministers of the word have handed them down to us, I too have decided, after investigating everything accurately anew, to write it down in an orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may realize the certainty of the teachings you have received. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news of him spread throughout the whole region. He taught in their synagogues and was praised by all. He came to Nazareth, where he had grown up, and went according to his custom into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read and was handed a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the passage where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. Rolling up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue looked intently at him. And he said to them, Today, this scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. The Gospel of the Lord. So to all of you intimately familiar with Luke's Gospel, you may have noticed that the first part of today's Gospel was the very first verses of Luke's Gospel. And then it jumps to chapter 4. So, did you notice that? <laughs> I am going to talk about those two different parts in separate little homilets. The first part is powerful. It's one of my favorite parts. They're all my favorite parts. Who is Theophilus? I might have shared this before. Luke is writing to Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus really is. There's many theories. One of them could be the person who funded his research and his work. But a very beautiful interpretation is it's a symbolic word. What does Theophilus mean? Theophilus means friend of God. Philio, friendship, and Theo, God, like theology. Friend of God. So who is this gospel written to? Are you a friend of God? It's written to us. And why is it written? Luke tells us, and here's an analogy that comes to my mind. You know how when something happens, usually something bad, 
we want to establish an independent commission to investigate it. Right? Because we don't want to trust those who were involved to investigate it because they might be biased. That's kind of what's happening here. Luke is saying, you've heard it from the apostles, the eyewitnesses, the ministers of the word. But I've independently investigated it myself so that we know their testimony is true and not biased. Isn't that powerful? And now we jump to chapter 4. Luke's gospel begins with the birth and the visitation and annunciation. And then, like the other gospels, the baptism, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit, goes into the desert, but then comes back and begins his public ministry. Remember last week, we were in John's gospel, similarly at the beginning. And John, in John's gospel, John shares with us a beginning of Jesus' ministry, the miracle at Canaan. And we talked about how that was symbolic to show us overall what the kingdom of God really was like. This passage plays the same role in Luke's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, very similarly, right at the beginning after the baptism, Jesus goes up to the mountain and teaches the Sermon on the Mount, laying out what the whole kingdom of God is about. And so too for Luke, this passage is proclaiming what the whole kingdom of God is about. Jesus is quoting the prophet Isaiah and saying this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he is fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament when God would come again and save his people. And the passage he chose is from Isaiah verse, chapter 61, verses 1 through 4, I believe, but the first verses. And it's using an image well known to the Hebrew people, the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is described in Leviticus chapter 25, when the things that are described here are legislated by law. You might be familiar with some of these, or you might even be familiar with the year of Jubilee. We have them still in the Catholic Church every 50 years, right? But nowadays it's only when the Pope really declares it. But in the Jewish law, Leviticus chapter 25, it's spelled out that every seven days should be a Sabbath. Every seven years is a sabbatical where the crops are given rest from planting. And then every sabbatical of sabbaticals, or seven times seven years, 49, on the 50th year is a year of favor, a year of jubilee, a year acceptable to the Lord. And some crazy things are legislated. All the debts are forgiven. Anyone sold into slavery because of their indebtedness, like the poorhouse, is released. Any land that had been sold or traded is returned to the original owner. Now, can you imagine those types of laws today? Some of them are pretty, pretty good. All your credit card bills forgiven. All your debts forgiven, but I don't know. Could you imagine if some of your land has to be given back to people years ago? 
the idea and the theology behind this is because when the people came into the promised land, God gave them the land. The land didn't belong to any individual but all the people. And the land was required back then to make a living, both growing food and raising your cattle or your goats. And so everyone had the right to what they need to sustain and live a life. And over time, through negotiations, yes, we become enslaved to indebtedness and things happen that are really make life burdensome, but every once in a while, debts are forgiven, we go back and remember that God is the source of everything and he gives it to all of us, not any one person. And so it's a challenging ideal. And quite frankly, scripture scholars will say we don't really know how well they really implemented this. But today, Jesus is using this analogy to talk about his kingdom. And in the time of Isaiah, Isaiah was using it to talk about the return from exile. How when the people who had been captured or enslaved in other countries came back to the promised land just like they were originally. And they re-entered that, started over, and in the first reading you hear how they recommitted themselves to living as God intended so that they would live long in the land. Jesus is saying that this is again what's happening. And admittedly, a lot of what he's talking about is forgiveness of sins, right? Debts and sins are talked about in the same way in Scripture. But it would be wrong to believe that he, Jesus is only talking spiritually. He is talking about the way God, humans were intended to live here on earth also. And especially in Luke's gospel, right? Matthew talks about blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke throughout his gospel, tries to not spiritualize the gospel message, but make it part of our life now. And so Luke says, blessed are the poor. And so the gospels and the word of God says lots of things like Leviticus 25 that are really challenging. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive seven times, 70 times, over and over, as many times as you're wronged. Share what you have with the poor. Go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Visit the captive, the imprisoned, shelter the homeless, or shelter the home, yeah, clothe the naked. There's lots of other things. <laughs> the gospel is extremely challenging. And you know what? What I hear a lot is, you know, it's not practical. It really doesn't work in the real world. If we do all those things, people will take advantage of the system. Well, I get angry, quite frankly, when I hear that, but it's understandable. And so I muse often on that criticism or that observation. And I wonder, I wonder if the gospel, as challenging as it is, was only meant as an ideal that really couldn't be realized. Would God really have become human? Would Jesus really have died 
and preached a message that, well, we're not really expected to follow anyhow. And all these things, treating others as you would have them treat you, is it really that those ideals don't work? Or is it rather that we just don't practice them and give them the chance? And if we don't practice them because we don't think they're practical and work in the real world, are we really any different than those who really actively work against them? Are we still not working against the kingdom of God? It's challenging to live the gospel. But I don't know, at my deathbed, at my judgment day, I'd rather stand before Jesus and say, you know, I don't know what you were really thinking, Jesus. A lot of that stuff you taught seemed pretty idealistic. But I took you at your word and I tried. And at times, it didn't seem like it was working and it seemed like people were taking advantage of it. But I did it. Treat me as you will. And you know what I think he would say? I would say, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I went through it too. But how else is the kingdom going to come if people don't have the courage to listen? Live it. And I am with you when you suffer for the kingdom. And so we have a challenge before us. God gives us a very high ideal. But it doesn't mean that we should fail to live it up the best we can. It means we should trust in our God and be willing to suffer the consequences when in this world it doesn't quite work. Because in the end, God will come back and establish the kingdom. And in the ideal really will be the real, because that's the way God intended it to be, the Garden of Eden, paradise. And then, if we're not a member of it now, suffering to bring it about, how can we expect to be a member of it then, when he brings it about in power? But also, as I reflect, it's not true that it's totally unrealistic. It might be a tall order to transform the entire world by the values of the gospel, but it is possible in smaller contexts. It is possible to do in our lives as individuals. It is possible to teach it and live it in our families. And as we do it in our lives, and as we do it in our families, then it will grow like the mustard seed. And we'll do it more and more in our church and in our schools and our places of work and our community. And by the power of God, it can grow and transform the world. And so today is Word of God Sunday. God's Word is challenging and many times contrary to the world. But He gives us the strength and the power to live it and he calls us to do our best and when we fail to repent and to try again but there is one other problem in doing God's word so many of us don't really know it well enough the gospels the letters of St. Paul the Old Testament how much of us really know that backwards and forwards? How many times have we gone over it again and again and compared it to the world and tried to see 
how the messages of the world are so much different than the message of the gospel. How can we listen to the news on the TV and the political discourse and all the conversations and not spend as much time listening to the Word of God and allowing the Word of God to shape our political discourse, our conversations, our life, rather than the world shape us. And so the challenge today is to not only live it, but to first know it. Because if we don't know it, we can't live it. And so on this Word of God Sunday, let us recommit ourselves to living in the land, the world that God gave us, to work for the common good, to bring about his kingdom, despite how sometimes difficult it is. But let us also learn more and more what that will of God is by studying his word. And then by his strength in this sacrament, him living through us together, we can bring it about.